Welcome back, Tiger fans, to Rockin' Nation's football podcast. I'm Nate Edwards. That's Brandon B.K. Kiley. This is Before the Box Score. We are post-Memorial Day edition. I hope you all had a tremendous extended weekend. Hopefully you had an extended weekend first and foremost. Uh, Thank you for all the soldiers who served and died. uh, Fighting for freedom for our great country. And I hope you took a second to remember them as you enjoyed your grilling and your uh, pool time. I think think pools are open, so... Uh, here we are. We are in June. It's June 1st. What does that mean? Well, that means there's not a whole lot of football content. I'll be frank with you. So we are going to stretch what we have for now. Uh, talk a little bit about the SEC meetings that we've experienced. Talk a little bit uh, about some articles that have posted recently, some commitments that have happened recently. Uh, and then we'll get out of here and let you get on your way. BK, how you doing, man? I'm doing fantastic, doing about as well as Mizzou is on the recruiting trail when it comes to junior colleges, <laughs> which is uh, quite the theme of the recent editions and probably the theme of some upcoming editions, it sounds like. Yeah, very interesting. We have become Juco U here at Mizzou, uh, both on the basketball and the football side. So we will get dive into that in a little bit, uh, but... As, as with most off-season shows, we do want to open up with some roster management, uh, some roster math, and in this case, some roster subtraction. Uh, a couple days ago, redshirt freshman defensive end Jonathan Jones announced that he was going to be entering the transfer portal. He gone. Uh, if you don't know his name, that's fine. I don't blame you. He was a mid-three-star recruit out of Texas. He redshirted last year, uh, the not-see-the-field type of redshirt. Uh, so number 90, we never saw him in action. Uh, but yeah, Jonathan's going to hit the road. We wish him luck. We don't know where he's going to end up, but he's not going to be at Mizzou. So BK, that just leaves us with uh, <clears throat> merely 11 defensive ends. Um, now, granted, six of those, well, two for sure are not going to be here next year. Six could be gone after next year, uh, leaving Johnny Walker Jr., Travion Ford, Kai Montgomery, if he's still an end. Arden Walker and DJ Weslack. Uh, so from a long-term standpoint, you're down a guy. Uh, but other than that, how do you feel about this loss? I mean, honestly, I, I just don't have a lot of thoughts on it. And yeah. the reason why is just because of the number of players that they currently have at that position. I mean, you look at what they've done at defensive end, not just for the last couple of years recruiting in terms of the high school guys, but also the transfers, the Juco guys, like they have thrown more resources into the defensive line than they have Mm -hmm. anywhere else on the roster since Eli Drinkwitz has been named head coach at Mizzou. So uh, it it stinks that this is a guy that didn't end up working out, but the reality is when you end up taking what is like eight commits from defensive linemen over the Mm -hmm. last couple of seasons, Mm -hmm the vast majority of them are not going to end up seeing out the entirety of their time at Mizzou. So uh, Jonathan Jones leaving is just kind of a byproduct of Missouri improving the talent along the defensive line. He was a 5.5 rivals rating three-star. So that's a low three-star recruit. And honestly, man, like I hate to be that guy, but they just have guys that came in with, better pedigrees than Jones. So it shouldn't be a shock to anybody that of the players at that position, he's the one that's it. That ends up leaving. Yeah. I mean, let's just, let's look at it. Trajan Jeffcoat and Isaiah McGuire each played more than 550 snaps at end. They were, they were the guys for most of the season. Once you got past that, the Walker boys, Johnny jr. And Arden, 
They had 124 for 20 or for Johnny and then 51 for Arden. Past that, uh, walk-on turned scholarship player Cannon York got 70 snaps. Uh, Daniel Robledo had 18. And then you get into all of the athletic potential with Kai Montgomery, Travion Ford, DJ Westlack, all blue chippers. Plus, we haven't even mentioned Tyrone Hopper, the doctor, mm-hmm. and DJ Coleman, who just got brought. So, like, what? where was he going to fit in? <laughs> was he going to make this huge jump and, you know, you surpass Cannon York. Congratulations. You just earned 70 snaps over 12 games. Like that was tough, man. So like, I, I think this is one of those where it just, it just made sense. And you know, it's, it's okay. It's okay. That's why they, they sink so much resources in the defensive line to find some that stick around and work. Um, so I don't blame him. There is really no clear path to seeing the field. Uh, unless he gained 80 pounds and became a tackle. And even then that's not even easier. Um, so, you know, we'll, he'll land somewhere, hopefully uh, get a scholarship somewhere, but uh, yeah, it's, it's tough to see a loss like that and imagine that it has any negative impact on this defensive line. Yeah. It, the reality is it's, he just wasn't going to have a whole lot of snaps next year. You know, they, they just weren't available to him. And even beyond next year, like you look to 2023 or 2024 and now they're recruiting over him. And, and that's probably the hardest part is like he just he didn't have a role on this team now or seemingly in the future. It turns out Jonathan Jones just is good at math. <laughs> and that That's <laughs> yeah. all you really need to be yeah. in order to find out why he ended up going elsewhere. And I hope he goes elsewhere and has success. But that success just very was very unlikely to take place at Mizzou. Yep. And that's the facts. So best of luck to him. Um, and we will move on uh, as a team because his his departure left a scholarship open and uh, Eli Drinkwitz and friends immediately filled it. Uh, let's go in chronological order here. Uh, back on May 22nd, we had uh, a Juco defensive back, Les L.J. Hewitt. Uh, he committed to Mizzou. He is a corner uh, a cornerback uh, from Gulf Coast Community College in Mississippi. Originally from Oklahoma. No, he's originally from Sanford, Florida. Um, did not have a lot of offers, but he was going up. We were going against Iowa State and Mississippi State. Two very fine mid-tier powers in the Big 12 and the SEC. Um, so there is that. Uh, he's walking into a cornerback room that is uh, young with a capital Y. Uh, if you look at, you know, once we lost Evans uh, and uh, Caleb Evans and Allie Green uh, and then Davian sister or not Davian sister, uh, Snoop, uh, uh, he, once those three left, you were left still uh, with seven corners, but none of them are older than a third year sophomore. Uh, so LJ gets to come in. He has... F- four years to play three, if I remember correctly. Um, and he's, he's, he's a body right now. He's six, three, one seventy five, So he's mega tall. Um, did you got a chance to look at his tape, right? What, what did, what did you, what did you think of LJ? So he is theoretical. I, I always remember, um, when God, what was his name? Texas, big man, Mo Bamba, Mo Bamba was going to the NBA and the, it's one of my favorite scouting reports ever. He is a, quote, theoretical shooter, which <laughs> what they meant by that is, in theory, he should be able to shoot threes. Like, it looks like he can shoot threes. The shot is there. The form is good. And if he develops, he should be able to do that. But right now, he can't shoot threes. And so, in theory, he should be good at it. 
It's kind of how I feel about LJ Hewitt right now. He is a th- theoretical cornerback. I don't know if he can actually do it at an SEC level, but he looks like he should be able to do it at an <laughs> SEC level. He's six foot three. He's really long, like crazy long arms. He's got decent speed. I wouldn't say he's the quickest guy in the world. I would say like if I was to describe his playing style, it is a longer and lankier, so not, not as much bulk version of Kenya Dennis. Like that, mm. That's probably the closest thing that I've got to him. Kenya was just crazy physical and Hewitt has some of that in him. Like he's pretty good against the run. He's completely unafraid to play press man. Like there are definitely some similarities to Dennis. Dennis was probably a little more physical and he was just bulky. Like he, he looked mm-hmm. like he could play strong safety and it wouldn't miss a beat there. But that's probably the closest thing that I've got in terms of recent Mizzou corners that would compare to LJ Hewitt in terms of his playing style and ability. He should be able to, again, theoretically, come in next year and play. I just have no idea how he compares to guys like Drayden Norwood or Davian Sistrunk or Dalen Carnell because we just frankly haven't seen those guys mm-hmm. it's like i think dj jackson enos rakestra and chris abram strain are your top three corners right now mm-hmm. i think after that dude put them in a blender and i have <laughs> no idea who plays where what their best roles are like i think carnell can play safety and corner maybe mm-hmm. in the nickel i don't really know at this point Norwood, I would imagine, is exclusively a nickel guy. Marcus Scott, I would think, has some versatility. LJ Hewitt exclusively on the outside along with Sistrunk. Mm -hmm. So it's just, it's a weird spot because you said they're very young, and that is true. But they're not only young, they're also inexperienced. And so you have this like weird blend of a lot of shoulder shrug emoji. I don't really know what to expect from the group. So Hewitt is a Mm -hmm. strong addition just because... In theory, he should be pretty good. I just don't know what it looks like when he's going up against SEC receivers as opposed to junior college receivers. Yeah. Chris Abrams drained 576 snaps last year. Uh, Enos Rickstraw, 216 before he was lost for the season. By the way, Drain is your best corner going into next year. I Absolutely. feel very strongly about Absolutely. that. Absolutely. DJ Jackson was uh, played over eight games, really picked up towards the end, 254 snaps to his name. And hold on. Davian Sistrunk, seven snaps. <laughs> Dalen Carnell, 14. Uh, Drayden Norwood, 22 snaps at Texas A&M. Marcus Scott, he's a freshman. That's it. That's who you have behind those three. And now you add Hewitt to that gumbo. And I don't know if it's going to be spicy or not, but you get it. You understand why they're doing this. <laughs> Just put somebody else back there. Create as much competition as you can, as many options as you can, Hope that there are zero injuries and run with your with your top three, and then hope that you know the youngsters can fill in uh, and not have a huge drop off in production and coverage. Um, I mean, this is going to be the safeties are experienced, but the corners are not, and this is going to be the place where opponents are going to target uh, either on outside runs or quick passes or whatever, and it's going to be on the secondary to to learn on the fly get good and shut them down. Otherwise this is going to be a very long year with a bunch of young people who learn valuable lessons at the, at the cost of passes and points given up. Yeah. There's this age long debate of what matters more cornerbacks or edge rushers. 
and like the, the reality is you kind of need both to be really good defensively but which one leads more to success of the other is it the edge rushers that lead to the because they force the quarterback to throw quicker which helps the cornerbacks or is it the corners being able to cover longer which helps eventually the defensive linemen get to the quarterback uh Mizzou's going to need it to be the defensive ends that matter more. Mm -hmm. Like if, if the answer to that question mm -hmm. is Mizzou has really good defensive ends this year, they get pressure on the quarterbacks that is going to help them a lot in the secondary, because especially early in the season, those guys are going to go through their struggles. Mm -hmm. There's just no, no way around it because they have so much youth and an experience back there. It's going to be, it's going to be tough early on. Eventually it might be good. Like it could be better later on in the season, honestly, than it was even at times last year. That's totally in play. It should not surprise anybody. But early on in the season, it's going to be tough. The I guess the blessing for Mizzou, if you want to call it that, is they've got Louisiana Tech, K-State, who just wants to run the ball from start to finish, um, Abilene Christian, Auburn, who really likes to run the football, Georgia, who, I mean, it didn't matter what Mizzou was going to do against them anyways, as your first few games of the season. So that should help in terms of gaining that experience. And then later on in the season, um, as you get closer to like the Tennessees and the Arkansas and stuff who maybe might throw the ball a little more, uh, hopefully they've got some experience. Yeah. I mean, Sonny Cumbie is Louisiana Tech's head coach. And if he brings the air raid to La Tech, uh oh, <laughs> he likes to throw it and he likes to go fast. So but if you've got issues, what I mean by that is if you've got issues at corner against Louisiana Tech, it's just going to be a long season. <laughs> yes. Abilene Christian is the same way. They brought in one of the best passing offensive minds as their offensive coordinator. Wonderful. So it's going to be these are tests that you should pass. Yeah. Right. I'm not saying it's going to be flawless. I'm not saying you're getting 100% on the, on the test. I'm saying you should get an 82, right? Like you're, it's going to push you, but you should be passing. Yeah. Totally. Fair. Kansas state, you know, Adrian Martinez loves to throw it, throw interceptions. Like that's, he wakes up thinking about throwing interceptions because he loves, he loves the long ball. So they're probably going to run it a ton. Um, and then yeah, Auburn is more run oriented. Georgia will do whatever the hell they want. And Florida likes to run it too. So it is when you get the step up in quality of opponent, that's when it gets less pass happy. But it's certainly not going to be easy, no matter what you do, especially if there's this glaring hole of, oh, you can throw it and you're probably going to complete it like any offensive coordinator worth of salt is going to figure that out. So it's going to be very interesting in these opening games to see how that secondary gels, especially since that's Blake Baker's jam, our new defensive coordinator. Um, and with these new pieces, God, you have to feel like it's just going to be a rotation until they figure out who can do what. You know, and maybe that takes a couple games. Maybe they figure out in fall camp, but uh, that that that's going to be the, the the concern as we go through fall. And any news you hear about the secondary injury or or good uh, is definitely something to keep tabs on. Yeah, I the secondary is my biggest question going into the season in terms of just like what is the ceiling there. I I, I think I know what other places there's at least hope that if things hit the right way. You squint a little bit and you could see, okay, there's there's some ceiling here and there's some floor. I don't know what to expect out of the corners specifically. I, I should clarify. Yeah. Safety, I feel pretty good about. The yeah. corners, I just don't know, man. I yeah. just don't know. Yeah, so uh, welcome, LJ. You're going to have all the opportunity in the world to play at Mizzou. Um, so I hope you take the take the, take the the advantage of that. Uh, and then 
a couple hours ago, Missouri got another commitment up from another JUCO uh, recruit, this time from offensive lineman. It is Makai, right? Makai Lee? That's what it looks like to me. I'm yeah. assuming that I, that is what it is. I think it is. It's awesome spelling, M-A apostrophe K-Y-I. Um, Makai Lee, uh, uh, Mr. Lee, <laughs> he is uh, from Coffeyville Community College. Uh, offensive tackle. He is 6'6", 315 pounds, originally from... Uh, What's Materi, I think. Materi, Louisiana. Um, so, BK, you have said before, and I have definitely started subscribing to this theory, of don't listen to the words that coaches say. Listen, quote-unquote, watch what they do. And early in spring, we heard that Hiron White went down with an injury, was going to miss a bunch of time. That turned into miss most of summer. And now you've heard rumors that that could be fall slash his entire season is done depending on the message board poster that you like to listen to um i have been hesitant to subscribe to either any of that information i was like look we'll find out when we find out but bk it kind of feels like if you're taking a juco offensive tackle at this point in the recruiting cycle might be the coaching staff saying we need to replace hiring and we need a big guy with experience to do it what do you think Kind of feels that way, right? Um, kind of feels like when they added Zeke Powell late in the process, you're mm -hmm. like, oh, that, that's interesting. Is he going to be a guy that ends up playing for them? And then suddenly he's starting against Alabama. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> and I think there's some potential here with that. Now, I will say they're in a better spot right now than they were when they added Zeke Powell to the roster. And the reason why is because like, you've got other players that are established, legitimate SEC caliber starters. Now we can debate whether or not they're high level SEC starters, but they're starters and they've proven in this league, they can at least hold their own. And so you kind of go left to right and you're like, all right, so Foster is going to get one of the starting spots. Delgado likely getting a starting spot. I think Wood is probably going to be starting mm -hmm. somewhere. Mm -hmm. You've got Polger and uh, Tolleson kind of battling it out right now at center. That's already four guys, five guys that you feel okay about. And that is before we get to the new edition of Lee. You've got Griffin in there as somebody who could potentially push for a spot in the interior. I think what you're going to end up with is Connor Tolleson is the name worth monitoring here. If he ends up winning that center job, it could potentially open up the possibility of like maybe Polger moves over to guard. Maybe Wood kicks out to offensive tackle. Mm -hmm. Maybe Tolleson ends up being the guy that they say, you know what? We like you at center, but eventually we project you to be a tackle. Why don't we just make this move now? And mm -hmm. we understand you're going to take your lumps. You're going to be our right tackle this year. And we're just going to see what that looks like. And you're going to have Connor Wood next to you with Polger on the uh, at center. And that allows us to have some experienced players next to Tolleson while he kind of figures out things and we can slide some uh, protections that direction because we got Foster on the other side. That's something that I would monitor here that I think going into to fall camp whenever we get there, I would be watching for. But at a minimum, if they decide Tolleson's not a guy that can play tackle, we don't think Connor Wood best uh, projects to be a tackle. We think he's better along the interior. Lee gives you some insurance. And mm -hmm. I think that's what a lot of these JUCO additions are right now is, okay, we're not really sure what we have at these positions. These guys have at least played a year or two in some cases of college ball at the JUCO level. Let's add some insurance at these spots. And I think that's what Lee is at right tackle right now.
Yeah. Now, last year we talked about. By the way, of, he's an ass kicker. <laughs> he's a big dude. He's yeah. a big dude. We talked last year a lot about offensive line as far as best players versus best fit. Mm-hmm. And for me, I think you agreed, but you can correct me if I'm wrong. For me, it seemed like the best offensive line combination was Foster, Griffin, at the time, Mayetti, Wood, White. Mm-hmm. But Connor Wood, I think we both agree, is a better tackle than he is a guard. But the better unit as a whole is when he was playing guard because you had Hiram White out there. So I don't know what they're going to do. I would love if Connor Tolleson could nab that center spot or you know bump Vince Bogart to guard, bump Wood out to tackle. I would be really curious to see what that looks like. Um, but, you know, could we see the return of Zeke Powell? <laughs> could, you know, I don't know, Bobby Lawrence make a jump after five years of doing nothing? Um, you have Valen Erickson coming in, but he's a freshman. You can't count on that. We had summer, or sorry, uh, reports from spring practice that uh, 6'3", 337-pound Dylan Spencer, uh, late of Jackson State and formerly of Missouri, who came back, was getting snaps at tackle. So, like... They clearly were trying a lot of different things in the spring just to see what they had. The fact that they went and got a Juco kid, fine. Like like you said, it's insurance. You're probably not signing him, planning on playing him, but you have them there as the option in case. So I get it. I get it. But I don't know how everybody works together. I don't know what the unit looks like. You're going to have a brand new center for the first time in two years. There's a lot of question marks and they're going to need that summer study session. And then the fall camps to really gel as a unit, because this offensive line has been fine the past two years. They've even had really bright spots. Like they have one of the lowest sack rates in the country, 12th best sack rate in the country last year, but they never really seem to dominate or blow you away. And I'm really curious what Marcus Johnson can do with this group of guys and if he can elevate anybody to really kind of start setting them apart as an SEC line. And I think Tolleson is the guy that gives you that ceiling, right? Like your your floor is because you have guys like Foster and Delgado and Wood. And you know, like those guys are going to be solid. I don't know what the ceiling is with them, but I'm pretty sure they're going to be solid. Tolleson's the guy that, and I'm with you, like I want to see him win one of those jobs, whether it be at center or tackle, or honestly, even if it's at guard, maybe he goes in at guard. Maybe Mm. this is the easier way to do it. You put Tolleson in at right guard, Wood kicks out to right tackle, and you've got Polgar at uh, at center. Mm -hmm. And now you've got a veteran, experienced player on either side of Tolleson, and it allows him to adjust to the college level a little easier. He's winning in a phone booth as opposed to on an island. Tackle is much more difficult to translate right away at the SEC level, especially where you've got just ridiculous edge rushers on basically every team. So maybe that's the spot. But Tolleson is the guy that if he wins a job, I think it changes the ceiling of this offensive line. Now, that being said, as a fan, you're also probably going to see more issues along the offensive line if he starts Mm -hmm. you're going to see higher highs and you're going to see lower Mm -hmm. lows and i'm willing to deal with that this year if it means you get your most talented player on the field who a year or two from now we could be talking about as a stud along the offensive line but what coaches typically do is they'll say okay i want to eliminate those lows 
And I believe that Wood, Delgado, and Polgar along the interior allow me to do that. Yeah. Um, so that's that is kind of the path of least resistance. I'm not a coach. I don't have to worry about that. I look more in the big picture as opposed to in the immediacy. And so Tolleson would be my choice. But How many times have we said 2023 is when mm-hmm. Eli Drinkwitz and Missouri really make a leap? And I still hold true to that. Connor Tolleson taking the helmet center is a step in that direction. Having every single corner take their lumps this year, that's helped sets you up for 2023, right? When they're all a year more experienced and you're talking about fourth year juniors, third year sophomores littering the second, the, the cornerback spot anyway, instead of some flavor of freshmen, uh, your running backs are going to be a year older. Maybe Nathaniel Pete stays. Obviously you don't want him to, cause you want him to have a good year, but those running backs are going to be juniors at that point. Your quarterback, whether that's Brady Cook or Sam Horn or transfer TBD, um, you know, they're going to have another year in the system. Luther Burton is going to be a year older. The horse is going to be a year older. Everything is targeting 2023. I am with you. If I'm Eli Drinkwitz, I know people, there are sections of the fan base saying, oh, what have you done? Five and five and six and seven. What is this crap? You suck, right? You can only recruit. Yeah. I guarantee you this administration is like, okay, you are on a four-year plan, kind of not regardless of what happens, but we are going to give you a a decent leash here because you can recruit super well. Why not put them out there? (laughs) Like, I know they're conservative gentlemen by, by just design. They want to win as many games as possible constantly. They're not always playing the long game, especially when you're trying to dig out of a hole. But I do see value in playing youth playing youth that's going to stick around for a while and getting your lumps and hoping that you score a couple wins while learning on the job. I, I am fine with that. But then again, I'm not writing checks to the athletic program and trying to get butts and seats and all that good stuff. So I get it, but uh, I don't know. There's just always something so intriguing about the, the future of the program and the youth of the program is getting to start. Uh, you kind of, you can't help but root for that sort of thing. Yeah, it's tantalizing, right? Yeah. That, that's what's exciting. Um, the, the excitement of, what we do, especially at the site that we write for, is like the future. It's hope trafficking, right? Like the, the idea <laughs> yeah. of it can get better. It will get better. And especially when you're recruiting at the level that Eli Drinkwitz has, you can sell that hope. And it's not just some like fake belief. Like there is there is real reason for optimism for the now and more importantly for the future that's where guys like Connor Tolleson and maybe even more importantly, obviously, like Luther Burden, or you look at some of the guys that they've added at other positions. Mm-hmm. Th- those are the guys that really get you excited about what the future could be for Mizzou football. Um, and you just you hope that within the next year, certainly you start seeing more and more of those guys added into the rotation because eventually you have to. Yeah, you do. And that leads me to my next topic. I, I think I talked about this way back in January. I teased a, writing an article about this and I finally got to it. I'm recruiting a lot of JUCOs and it led to the question, does Missouri actually have success with signing JUCO recruits? And if they do, what does that success look like? And if they don't, what do JUCO recruits usually do? So BK, I did something silly. I took a look at every single JUCO recruit that Missouri has signed since 2001. 
I then narrowed down my sample size for the past 10 years of kids who could play. So that took us from 2012 to 2021. By the way, I should peel back the curtain for a second here. Yes. As you were doing this, I texted you and said, (laughs) I think I'm going to write about Mizzou's Juco success or lack thereof. And I started (laughs) as I was texting you looking at the last decade of Mizzou Juco recruiting and writing down the list of, okay, here are the players that ended up signing to Mizzou out of Juco. So we are both two sickos (laughs) who have way too much time on our hands or just care about the minute details of what recruiting is. So I just wanted to share that with our listeners that um, unfortunately we have both become far too alike. Uh, Yeah. And I am the senior elder statesman, so I got dibs. Uh, <laughs> um, so yeah, here's here's what we found. Here's what I found out. Okay, from 2012 to 2021, Missouri signed 29 JUCO recruits. Two nine, 29. Of those 29 gentlemen, a total of nine, or 31 percent, started at least one game. Nine out of 29, 31 percent. Now, five of those starters were multi-year starters, so that's good. That's 55% of your starters from JUCO ended up doing it for multiple years, which is good considering they only have two years. But that's only 17% of the entire group, right? Five out of 29. Of course, there's only one All-American and one NFL draft pick, and that's Marcus Golden from that 10-year span. Um, So that is 3%. So take those numbers. It's a small sample size, but how does that compare to Missouri's high school and transfer recruits, right? How do those guys shake out? Well, from 2012 to 2021, Missouri signed 224 high school and transfer recruits. They got 113 starters out of that. That's like 50.4%. They got 67 multi-year starters. That's 30%. They had 20 All-Americans, freshmen, All-SEC, All-American, whatever. That's 9%. And then 14 uh, were drafted into the NFL, which is 6%. So there's a very clear winner here. If, you, if you're looking for a starter, a high school or a transfer, you got about a 50% hit rate. Juco's got 31%. If you're looking for a multi-year starter, 30% of your high school or transfers are going to do that. 17% of Juco's will. If you want an All-American, high school or transfer, 9% hit rate, JUCO, 3%. And then NFL draft picks is 6% for high schools and transfers. And then, of course, 3% for JUCO. So, BK, it kind of feels like if you're looking for quality player, you shouldn't go JUCO. At the same time, you don't sign a JUCO player because you're wanting an NFL starter or an All-American or a multi-year starter. You're doing it just to get a body in there. But at the same time, with some of these, the the amount these JUCO kids play, like a couple snaps over the years, I kind of feel like a freshman could do that <laughs> just as well. Um, what did you think of of what we came to collectively as a unit on, on this JUCO analysis? So first of all, people should go read this because it's really, really good over at rockamnation.com. The breakdown of every single year, what the JUCO players did, who signed, what they ended up becoming. It is an excellent read and it is well worth your time. You're going to become a smarter Mizzou fan because of it. Um, I think what I've arrived at is this. Mizzou signs Juco players because they're terrified of what they have at that respective position. Mm. And if all hell broke loose 
could this guy start for me now? Maybe you don't want him to, but could he? And I think that's what they go to the position for. Like you look, especially over the last few years at those guys that they have signed. Walter Palmore. He was somebody that came in and contributed along the defensive line immediately, Mm -hmm. as did Rashad Brandon. Yasir Durant was a guy that came in and contributed immediately, and they had no depth at offensive tackle prior to him. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Nate Anderson, something similar. They looked at that at defensive end, and they were like, "Mm, this is a guy that can come in and help us right away if we need him to. Then you look kind of more recent. Harry Ballard just never really worked. Lindsey Scott, they had no depth at the quarterback position. If somebody got hurt, can this guy give us snaps that are reasonable? They believed the answer was yes. Antar Thompson, same thing, just didn't work. Um, Zeke Powell, can this guy come in and give us snaps if we need them? Yes, and he did. Ben Key hasn't worked. Uh, Daniel Robledo, kind of same as Ben Key. Rialis George, though, came in and immediately contributed along your defensive line. So... Mm-hmm. I think that's the difference. If you're looking for floor, we talked about this with the offensive line. If you're looking for somebody who can come in, give you snaps, and you feel like they could at least get the job done, that's where you go the Juco route. And they have to be a specific type of player most of the time as well. We, we didn't mention this, but um, Demarion Houston is another guy that they signed from Juco that is going to reclassify. That was announced earlier this mm, week. That's right. Yeah. Um, Uh, The wide receiver that we talked about on our last show. So we've already broken down what his game is, but basically imagine Boo Smith, but actually fast. That's that's Demarion Houston. And so he's going to come in and he's probably going to play five to ten snaps a game. Mm -hmm. They have an exact role. They know exactly what he's going to bring to the offense before they even signed him. They said, we need this guy to add this element to our offense. Where can we find it? They found it in Houston. So I think that's kind of what they're looking for here. We have a lack of depth at offensive tackle. Well, let's go find somebody for that. We're not sure what we have right now at cornerback. We don't know if these guys can actually start. Well, let's go find somebody who could potentially start right away. Uh, And I think that's what they're doing at the JUCO level. I get it. I just don't want them to overdo it. Don't add 10 JUCO players to your roster. Otherwise, you get stuck. And these guys just become players that sit on the roster for three years. And I hate to say it this way, but it's the reality. And you're trying to recruit over them and you can't. And that's where things become difficult. But as long as you use it to the best of your advantage and you don't get stuck with these guys on your roster, I think it's fine. Let's walk 300 miles to the west to a state called Kansas where we can see two case studies of how this works and how it doesn't work. And it worked with Bill Snyder in Kansas State for, let's call it, 30 years. (laughs) Kansas has actually a pretty well-developed junior college system, and they attract, surprisingly, very good players. And they've done so for about 40 years now. And what Bill Snyder did was that he would, very much like Gary Pinkle, he would target uh, project players overlooked players in populous areas, Texas, uh, comb the corners of Kansas high school that you know does not have a lot of clout, but certainly has a lot of players. And he would find kids that fit his system that other programs didn't want, but he could do something with. Think of Colin Klein. He was a tight end in high school. He turned him into a battering ram of a quarterback. That's what he did in the high school ranks. Then he looked at the Kansas junior college ranks and said, what are our gaps, and could find really talented guys who could do 
the two things they needed them to do really well and nothing else, but plug them into a system that maximized their strengths, mostly avoided their weaknesses. And he put out teams that were challenged for certainly conference championships and even national championships a couple of times. It was very selective. It was very strategic and it worked. It was a good balance between high school and junior college. Now, you go to Lawrence, Kansas, with the school we don't talk about. Charlie Weiss was hired in 2008, I want to say. 2000, no, 2010. This was after Mark Mangino was fired. And he saw a roster that he wanted to flip immediately. And he signed in one class. Now, remember, you can only take 25 players. In one class, he took 16 junior college players. And then in the next class, he took another 14. That's 30 players. That's 30 two-year players in two years. And then they were gone. And then what, what, were you, what was left? Nothing. The next guy had to hit, he had to hit the JUCOs just as hard to replace that. They have been digging out of the Charlie Weiss hole for almost 10 years at this point. Because Kansas has no natural players, naturally good players, or a lot of them, that they can just naturally tap into. Then if you just blindly sign junior college players and say, well, they got experience, they can they can figure it out, you're going to just stack your roster with two-year loaners that leave gigantic gaps in depth and no development. That's why Kansas has sucked so hard for so long. Now, you had a David Beatty who was really strategic in his recruiting and getting something, but he, you know, he wasn't winning games. So they fired him or tried to fire him for cause. There's still a uh, lawsuit held over that. Remember when Jamar chase was a KU commit. That was fun for like six weeks. Yeah. 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 Um, but you know, Les miles did the same thing, right? Just two year players. It's it, you have to be strategic. If you take too many, you leave too many gaps and then you get stuck just recruiting Juco all the time. Really? You know, the the more the best way of doing that sort of thing is just transfers. D2, FCS, G5. Find kids at quote unquote lower levels that can play, bring them up. They got the one transfer for free. You can slot them in immediately. That's a more efficient way of doing it. But I understand there's not always going to be transfers out there that are going to fit your system or going to be what you want or even want to go to your school. And junior college is probably more enticing to get, you know, easier to get them in the door. They just might not have what you want. So I understand the strategy behind it. And I understand why they're doing it. It just seems kind of like a more antiquated answer. And I do worry like you that they overdo it and then we're left in gigantic holes in the depth. But, you know, if this is it, you know, it should be okay. I just, I don't know what it means kind of going long-term. I also wonder, and this would be my other big question on this. Is it possible that the the JUCO ranks, because this is happening on the college side of things, or college basketball side of things, rather. Is it possible the JUCO ranks are going so under-recruited right now because of the transfer portal and because of uh, the importance of NIL at the high school level and all of that? There, there's so much pressure and so many different um, entities that are going into those portions of the recruiting Juco is almost going overlooked in a lot of different mm -hmm. ways yeah. that maybe you are getting a higher quality of player at this point in the cycle than you otherwise would have in recent years. Could I be. don't know the answer to that question. Could be. And like, it's possible we find out, no, all of these guys are basically the same as what you would have gotten in other years. <laughs> sure. But 
if I was going with a like glass half full explanation as to why Mizzou thinks this will and can work, it would probably be that, that they believe there is a higher quality of player to be had from Mizzou at this point in the cycle at the JUCO ranks than if they were going out there to try to find a transfer to fill these holes at this point. Sure. Yeah, you got to find your market inefficiencies. You know, you buy low. <laughs> that That's great. Uh, you don't need to sign them for, to an NIL deal. Perfect. Or not a, not a huge one anyway. Yeah, knock yourself out. Um, and you know what? <laughs> we know already a third of these guys are not going to see the field. <laughs> like on average, that's how it's going to be. Uh, we'll probably get one of these that get, uh, you know, start one game. Uh, maybe one that becomes a multi-year starter. And certainly we're not expecting any of them to be all Americans or anything like that. But if they just, if they do a Zeke pal and they do exactly what is expected of them, which is start a few games, tread water, don't blow it up, buy time for the younger guys to get their feet under them. If they do that, then thank you. Hat tip, here's your degree. Thank you for your service. Like that's, that's great. And Zeke's been a team player. He started, I think, yeah, he started eight games in 2020. Um, that's that, that's a he came in like August, <laughs> so like he did it. He he did the thing, and he was not noticeably bad. Uh, I'm not saying he blew the world away, but he was he was not noticeably bad. He did not start last year. He played in four games, 34 snaps over four games. So, you know, we, once they Missouri figured out their tackle depth, and he's just a utility player, and maybe we see him again. But you want a Zeke pal? I think that is kind of the the goal for signing a Juco and then you pie in the sky, you know, he the multi-year starter and he's awesome and all that stuff. So if it's market inefficiency, I get it. Um, it just, it makes me a little nervous sometimes. So, um, yeah, we'll, we'll see what happens there. Uh, and then just kind of closing it out it, there were sec meetings, uh, this week felt like a, like a papal conclave, uh, with the amount of, reverence and the reporters coming down to just these coach meetings really didn't see a whole lot coming out of it. Uh, the, the fun news item is that we found out that Auburn coach Brian Harson has a podcast, which means that we must defeat him in podcast battle now. Um, so please rate and subscribe so we can beat him. Uh, <laughs> gosh, war Eagle. Um, it's called, Hey, it's a huddle with horror. God, BK, I, Football coaches have to be the least interesting people in the world. They don't have any friends. They don't have any hobbies. They don't, they have a family. Couldn't name half the kids that they, they have. They don't, they don't know what their interests are. They know their coaching staff pretty well. They know the kids they coach. And they can tell you everything you want to know about a 3-4 defense hybrid. But I got to believe that Brian Harrison's podcast is either going to be a total snore fest or just that junky, faux sport motivational crap that just – Every football coach loves, and I hate to look through on Twitter. What are your thoughts on this? Yeah, my thoughts are basically this. A lot of guys within college football or just sports in general try to start up these podcasts, right? And the problem is most of them just aren't all that interesting. Like, I'll listen to a couple of the episodes, and I'm like, okay, I'm I, I, this might be good. And then you get, like, two episodes in, and you're like, what have I received from this? Like, I, I don't find it particularly entertaining, they're not giving me any actual information and I just kind of leave feeling like I wasted an hour of my life listening to that. And so that's kind of where I expect that this will go is that Brian Harson leaves you wanting a lot more and that's what it ends up being. But him starting this kind of got us to wondering, okay, who would be the best college football <laughs> coach to do this? Mm -hmm. 
I think that a lot of Mizzou fans would like to believe that Eli Drinkwitz would be interesting on these. The problem is that Eli Drinkwitz is really good in press conference form. He's yeah. witty. He has really good one-liners. I don't know if he's open enough to be to actually do like a full long form podcast. And you've got to have a lot to talk about. And you've got to be willing to share your thoughts on those. And a lot of the times that means being a little bit more established as a head coach and feeling comfortable in your situation. So a few guys that I came up with that I think might be interesting in something like this, and this does not mean they're the biggest names, but just established, entertaining, has a pretty good delivery, those sorts of things. One guy that I would love is Dino Babers. <laughs> I I absolutely adore Dino in terms of what he does when he speaks. Don't know if he's a great coach. He's pretty good as an offensive mind, but I like Dino Babers a lot. Dana Holgerson, I think, would be pretty good in this kind of an arena. <laughs> oh, my God. He'd be drunk for it. But yes, that would be good. Correct. <laughs> Herm Edwards, I think, would be very good. We've already seen him in the media. He would be good in this respect. Yeah. And then the one wild card that I just honestly don't know how I feel about him. I know there's like hit and miss in terms of people's thoughts on him. I think PJ Fleck, there's a possibility that you would leave one episode being like, damn, that was interesting. Uh, and then you'd listen to like two or three more and you'd be like, OK, I can't do this anymore. So those were the four that I came up with that I think might have the potential to be interesting. Man. <laughs> PJ Fleck is. Is good in small doses. Correct. Like, I He is. He is um, that trainer that you hire because you need to get off your ass, not because you want to hang out with him. <laughs> um, I think his shtick would get super old, super fast, Agreed. but, but yes, I think there would be a lot of energy behind it. And uh, yeah, I can, I can, I can get on board for a little bit. Yes. I think the guy that I would like to have on a, um, as a guest, frankly, but also just have his own podcast. Marcus Freeman, the new Notre Dame head coach. Oh, sure. Yeah. Tremendous interview. Now, part of this is that he's a newer head. He's a brand new head coach. He's still relative. You know, he is the only college football head coach who had a rivals page. <gasps> That's amazing. Yeah. Marcus Freeman. Um, so he he is an he's an engaging guy. I don't know if being the head coach at Notre Dame is going to break him of that, but for now, I would want him on there. Uh, Craig Bull out of Wyoming is very uh, folksy in a very funny way, a very approachable way. I don't know if he would be good long form, but I do enjoy hearing him talk about football. Um, I will say this, and th this is going to be true for everybody. I understand that. I wonder how Nick Saban would be because so he, I was interested. I was thinking the same thing. Here's the thing. He might be okay. It can't be coach Saban. So he would have to be retired because everything he does as coach Saban is to motivate his guys, motivate his booster base, right? Like that, that's all he does. But if you've ever heard him in a coaching clinic, or if you've ever heard him in like a sit down interview where it's very much, I'm not on the job, Nick, very interesting guy very dry but very funny very insightful and i don't know i mean he's 73 i don't know what you know i don't know what his interests are if anything like that but he is a very engaging conversation if you get him out of football mode so that would be my list uh, eli 
I love you, man. I think you'd be funny in a couple instances, but how much do you actually have to say and can you keep it up? I, I don't know. So that would be, that would be my list. And I, I don't know, think I would subscribe for multiple seasons, but I'd give him a shot. It would be interesting in small doses. Uh, I don't think that you could have like a multi-season podcast that would do a whole lot of numbers. Well, maybe, maybe it would do numbers. It wouldn't leave me wanting to continue to listen. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I will say this. Illinois' Brett Bielema has also some very good one-liners, but I don't think there's a lot of wheels moving yeah. behind there. Dave Aranda is a really, really smart guy. He's too intense for this. It's very scary. <laughs> like I don't, I don't think I'd want to listen to him talk in my ears for an hour every week. So, yeah, I don't know. We'll see how Harson does. Um, but yeah, I mean, he, we have to hate him now. Not only because we're playing him this year, but we must be the better podcast. Um, really, the only other thing that came out of these, I'm just going to call it a conclave, the SEC conclave, was the discussion of scheduling. And it sounds like they didn't really come to a consensus or maybe not even have a vote, but every coach gave their input on what they want the new schedule to be. Uh, if, if you've been under a rock or you haven't been keeping track of this, but Texas and Oklahoma are joining the SEC probably next year, but in the soon to be future. Um, and Greg Sankey, the commissioner of the SEC, has said that any kind of scheduled change won't happen until Texas and Oklahoma join. Um, a couple of athletic directors have said that they are not doing the pods uh, design, which has been championed by Bill Connolly, SB Nation, us. <laughs> um, but they have considered one of two things. The first that they're considering is a 1-7, where each team has one uh, dedicated rival that they play every year, and then you rotate seven other teams to fill out your eight-game SEC schedule. The other option is a 3-6 model, where you have three permanent rivals that you play every single year. And then you rotate six other teams to fill out a nine game sec schedule. BK, let's break this down in two chunks. Number one, which of those is best for Mizzou? And then number two, which would you go for as a college football fan? Well, it depends who are the three teams. <laughs> because well, we'll get into that too, I, but yeah, I think that would play a significant um, factor into which one of those would be better. Like if you're getting stuck playing and I, this wouldn't be the case, but Alabama, Georgia, and let's say it's Arkansas on a year to year basis. Like, yeah, no, that's, that's very bad. You don't want that as a Mizzou fan. But if it ends up being that Mizzou plays, let's say it's South Carolina, Arkansas, and I don't know, kentucky or florida every year that's not so bad like yeah that that makes a lot more sense to me or maybe it's one of oklahoma or texas right mm -hmm. just because of that natural like former big 12 rivalry mm -hmm. that would make some sense to me and i think that that might be the ideal scenario so you have less of a chance year to year to play alabama georgia so on and so forth so i think it really just comes down to who those three teams are as a college football fan though I think it's tough because the SEC is so enriched in tradition that there will be some teams that if you tell them they can only have one team that they play year to year, mm -hmm. they would lose their damn minds. <laughs> yeah. Like if you told Alabama fans that the only team you're going to play every year in the SEC is Auburn and there is no other team that you're going to make sure that you see every year, 
they would go crazy. Like Alabama, Tennessee is a really big rivalry. Yeah. And not playing that game annually would be a problem for mm-hmm. those two schools. Um, who is like, for example, another one like Ole Miss. Are they only going to play Mississippi State every year? I, I don't know, man. I, I think that would be a little problematic in terms of the way that they put together the schedule. So my assumption is they end up going with the three teams on yeah. a year to year basis just because there are going to be so many ADs that would lose it if they didn't go that route. <laughs> yeah. Even it's- if it's not for the best. Yeah. One, one seven is not an option. Yeah. Because, because you are giving up too many, too many rivalries. Like you're not going to have Alabama, not play LSU, not play Auburn, not play Tennessee. Uh, you're not going to have Georgia, not play Florida or not play Auburn. The isn't Georgia, Georgia, Auburn's like the oldest rivalry of the South or that's, that's the moniker that it goes by. So like you can't just not play outdoor cocktail party, but you also can't play oldest rivalry of the South. Like you, it's going to be three, six. Now the best for Missouri, frankly, is just one seven, regardless of opponent, regardless of opponent, Missouri at this point fewer. is not good enough to do a nine game SEC yeah, schedule. They need four non-conference opponents. Now we got to also get out of this, you know, schedule Boston college on the road junk, but they did a really good job this year. You got the interesting game with Kansas state. And then you got three terrible teams starting over. So like, this is mwah, 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 perfect. I love that. But the best way for Missouri to consistently make a bowl game, whether it's in a rebuild or it's a, a kick-ass experienced team, you need four wins coming into conference play. And one seven would provide that three, six does not three, six. You're coming in with three non-conference games and then, Oh, well, now you got to steal three from conference. So it's an extra one both ways and it's an extra game played and then it's an extra game that you got to win. So one seven is always going to be best for Missouri, but yes, three, six would be my vote. That's just, it's too interesting. (laughs) It's way too interesting. And I love it. You have to play every team in the sec within four years, um, four, four year three, because you mentioned this, this is so masochistic, but part of me wants Texas, Oklahoma, Texas, A&M. Number one, they're going to have Arkansas be one of them. I'm so sick of Arkansas. I love. I hear you, but my, they're going to do it. Tucker and Saul over at uh, Woo Pig Suey, like I love you guys. You're great. I don't. I don't like Arkansas games. I don't like Blaine Barry. And there's still people that are just barking about Big Twelve this, Big Twelve that. Well, we could get it back. <laughs> we could get a third of it back. Um, so part of me is interested in that, but I do think it's going to be Arkansas, probably A and M. Because they kind of push that as our rivalry. That's the one that I was going to say. I think Texas A&M gets Mizzou, LSU. Yeah. And then who would be there? Texas. Probably Texas. Texas. Yeah, yeah, probably Texas. Yeah. And then, so who would Oklahoma get? They would They're get- the ones. Like, Mizzou is a weird fit sometimes in the SEC. Oklahoma is going to be a super strange fit They're in the SEC. They're a weirder fit. Yeah. I mean, you got to have Red River. Okay. Yeah. I'm assuming... Well, Okie State's not coming, so you would probably put Oklahoma. Oh, geez. They're the ones that are tough, man. I don't know. Oklahoma, Arkansas have any bad blood? They're old. They're not even Southwest Conference because big Oklahoma's been Big Eight and then Big Twelve. Yeah, I I don't know that. That's the one that I don't know what you do with. Um, but probably Arkansas and Mizzou. It has to be Oklahoma Mizzou, yeah, because that that is technically a rivalry game. The 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 peace pipe, right? So like they're probably going to force that on us yeah so it'll be oklahoma arkansas 
And I would bet South Carolina. Columbia. Yeah. yeah. That that would be my guess as to which three Mizzou huh. would get. How would you feel about that? Because I feel like that's Oklahoma, honestly all things Arkansas. considered pretty good for Mizzou. I would be okay with I don't know what a Brett Venables Oklahoma team is gonna do. They're you know, they recruit really well for the Big Twelve. They play really well for the Big Twelve. What does that mean for the SEC? I don't know. They had the same questions for Mizzou. We did okay for two years. So like that's a junk argument. But it's it's a brand new regime. It's a new era in Oklahoma. I don't know. So until we figure it out, I'm kind of on board with Missouri, Oklahoma being every year. That's that's fun. It's familiar. And uh that I don't know. Could be a couple of wins. I don't know. I'm on board with that. I feel like there'll be a more talented version of Kentucky. Like just in terms of stylistically what it'll look mm. like. That's that's probably and that's me like just putting on my own sure. sensibilities of what I think his team would look like. But that's yeah. that would be my best guess. Like power football, mm-hmm. potentially get a better quarterback in there. And it's like, oh, okay, this is really interesting. Play really good defense and then just have crazy athletes all over the field. <laughs> that would be that would be my assumption as to what a Venables Oklahoma team looks like. Um, but if you could get that, if it does end up being Oklahoma, South Carolina, and Arkansas, that would probably be about as good as you could do. And the nice thing about this kind of a schedule would be you you just get more of the SEC West teams thrown into your schedule on a regular basis, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah. uh, on a more reasonable schedule, you'll see Mizzou go down to LSU and have the opportunity as a fan to be able to make that trip, which is a really cool trip and one that I've always wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, you'll be able to see Mizzou go down to Auburn or Alabama on a more regular basis. And obviously for the football side of things, that's not good. (laughs) You don't want to see Mizzou go to Alabama, but as a fan, like that's a really cool trip to be able to go on, you know? So I think that is what makes it more interesting uh, about the kind of switching things up and making it more of a round Robin, if you will, Mm -hmm. on a year to year basis, but uh, it doesn't make it any easier on the football side. It doesn't. No. But I will say, you know, if you go to L- well, not LSU, but if you go to Alabama or you go to Auburn or, you know, you go to Ole Miss, Missouri is not a threat to those fan bases. Like if you walk around with your Mizzou gear on, they're probably going to welcome you with open arms. So it's a good trip for now. If we start beating them, then it's going to be a little bit different story. But uh, definitely worth the trip when we're when we're either neutral or not a threat at all. So uh, yeah. that, that's the time to do it. But uh, I've been on three trips to SEC teams. Uh-huh. Yeah, it was Tennessee, Florida, and Ole Miss, uh. all of which were a lot of fun. I would probably rank them one Tennessee, two Ole Miss. Those are really close, and then a distant third Florida. So if you have the opportunity to go to any of those three, that would be. Uh, I would definitely choose Ole Miss or Tennessee way over going to Gainesville. Wouldn't recommend <laughs> Gainesville. I mean, it is a swamp. It is. Yeah, a, it's, it, it's fine. It's yeah. fine. There's nothing wrong with going there, but the other places are just better. Yeah. So the benefit of being in the band is that I think I went to every big 12 stadium, except for Baylor. I went to every single one. I have not. What was gone. your favorite and your least favorite favorite? Well, Favorite stadium or favorite trip? A favorite trip, because that's what makes it interesting yeah. as a fan. It's not just like the being in the stadium, but also the whole like weekend experience there. Yeah. So I have I have waxed poetic about how I think Manhattan, Kansas is a gem. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I was a big fan of that. I also, okay, I hated Oklahoma. 
hated Oklahoma. Not because we lost, but because it just reeks of cow crap. And like, there's nothing around. And the fans, you know, they're not mean, but they were not friendly at all. Um, <laughs> the trip that I actually secretly liked a lot was Iowa State. And I think it was because, you know, Iowa State and Missouri were kind of, you know, kindred spirits for a long time uh, in the Big 12. And their fans were just constantly drunk and constantly happy to have people in their city. I don't know how they are now, but I did like I did like that trip. That was kind of fun. Um, Texas was not a lot of fun. Oklahoma was not a lot of fun. And A&M is super culty. I felt mm-hmm. like a, I felt very uncomfortable in Texas A&M. But uh, yeah, there are some good trips. And I, I never went to Baylor and then they tore down the stadium anyway. But uh, yeah, Texas Tech was also a that was a slog. <laughs> the fans were very cool, but like that, it's not easy to get out there. And you know, you've heard plenty of stories about Mike Leach and flying them in at night. <laughs> so they don't see how terrible it is. Yep. But uh, I don't know. Well, so you've been to the sec. Have you been to any big 12? Were you out of diapers at that point to go travel? I mean, I've been to Kansas. I grew up in K state or in uh, KC. So That's I've right. been to KU yeah. for those games, but that, that is it actually in terms huh. of the big 12 travel, because by the time that I was 18, I mean, I went to Mizzou in my first year on campus, they were leaving for the sec. Yeah, that's so right. yeah. most yeah. of my experience growing up was going to, uh, just going to Columbia. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm excited for the change. I, just, just for something different, you know, uh-huh. divisions are cool and like, it's easier to win a division than try to win this slog of win percentage, but it's not going to be the best for Mizzou, but it is going to be best for the game. And who knows, you know, maybe Alabama or LSU playing one extra sec game knocks them out. You know, you never know. Georgia might trip over a uh, A&M or trip over Arkansas more frequently. I don't know, but um, it is going to be an interesting development, and we won't figure it out until Texas and Oklahoma jump on, which probably 23, but technically 25, I think, is the official. Um, but we shall see. Anyway, look at that. I think we just got an hour of content out of <laughs> on a June 1st show. Uh, BK, any, uh, any parting shots for the listeners? Yeah, it, if you hear this show, it is guaranteed to go an hour, and there is no way around that. So thank you all for listening. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's his superpower. It doesn't doesn't matter what day of the year it is. I can give a mic to BK, and we can get to an hour. It's just that's his superpower. That's great. Um, but yeah, that's going to be the show for today. As always, we appreciate the downloads and the subscriptions. Leave a comment. You can rate us. We love all types of feedback from you all. You can follow us on Twitter. I'm at Nate G. Edwards. He is at BK Sports Talk. And, of course, you can follow the Rock and Flagship at Rock and Nation and listen to BK on the radio in St. Louis 101 ESPN. We appreciate you tuning in this time. We'll try to do better next time. And until then, M-I-Z. Z-O-U.